Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you. Lord, I pray for the person who has come here with a broken heart or a heavy heart or an empty heart. Lord, I pray that you would provide healing. Lord, I pray that you would provide wholeness. Lord, we know that Jesus is alive and because Jesus is alive, he can mold us and shape us. Heavenly Father, we know that you are unchanging, but we are ever-changing. And Lord, we want to change from a life that's dishonoring and displeasing to a life that's honoring and pleasing to you. So, Heavenly Father, for the guilty, Lord, we pray that you would provide forgiveness. And for the the grief-stricken, Lord, we pray that you would provide comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. John's Gospel, chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Mary Magdalene has braved the cold chill and the heavy darkness to make good on a promise. She goes while it's still night and before the sun is peaked over the horizon. John, the beloved apostle, is an eyewitness to the events that he's recorded. And Peter is a real-life participant in the greatest story ever told. John isn't interested in simply writing a detailed account of the incidents of the resurrection to simply persuade the doubter or the skeptic or the unbeliever, John's account seems designed to accomplish two things. To relate the things that happened that caused him to immediately understand and believe the truth about Jesus Christ. To believe his mission and to believe his message. Clearly, John has another goal. It's to give enough evidence to lead anyone to immediate belief if and only if the person is willing to believe. This chapter's focus is on three 
post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Each appearance will serve a purpose. Each appearance will provide support for the claims of Jesus. Jesus will appear to Mary in verses 1 through 18 and appear to the disciples in verses 19 through 25. And later, Jesus will appear to Thomas in verses 26 through 31. And many of us are used to hearing this particular story on Resurrection Sunday. Three disciples descend on Jesus' borrowed grave, and all three expect to find a dead body, a Roman guard, a large stone. And millions of people all over the planet Earth will typically attend church on Easter Sunday on resurrection morning, and they will expect choirs to sing and they will expect music to play and they will expect trumpets to blow and they will expect Easter lilies to fill fragrant sanctuaries. But they rarely expect a miracle. They rarely expect that somehow, some way, something will be different about the way that they think or the way that they feel or the circumstances of, of their life, they expect to pay religious respect to the tradition that Jesus rose from the dead, but some secretly don't even believe that. We're so familiar with the story. We know that the stone will be rolled away. We know that the disciples will find the grave clothes on the crypt. They know that Jesus will be portrayed alive. Mary expects to find a sealed tomb. Mary expects to find a dead body. Mary expects to finish and make good on a promise that she made that Jesus would receive a decent burial. Peter expects that something has happened. But he can't quite figure it out. He wonders what's, what Mary's story means and what the empty tomb implies. And John is about to embark on an unexpected discovery. One makes a, dis, a surprising discovery. The other makes a pensive discovery. But make no mistake about it, the events surrounding this empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus will tell you something about your own heart and your own circumstances. Look again in verse 1. It says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Matthew's Gospel says it was the end of the Sabbath, meaning somewhere between 3 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the morning, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. And the early church believed that Jesus rose before dawn, before the sun came up. And the Jews, by the way, never celebrated birthdays of great men like Abraham or Joseph or Moses. They celebrated events like the Passover. But early on in the book of Acts, we see a new celebration beginning to take place as disciples would gather and they would celebrate 
the resurrection of Jesus on the first day of the week. Being observant Jews, they would go to temple. But being newborn Christians, they would gather together and pray together and break bread together and minister together and support one another on Sunday morning. Jesus rose and Mary saw that the stone was already rolled back. Now, clearly, the stone wasn't rolled back to let Jesus out of his grave. It was rolled back to let observers in. To let people with a grieving heart in. And to let people with a skeptical heart in. To let people with a doubting heart in. An empty tomb. What does it mean? The French skeptic Renan said, You Christians live on the fragrance of an empty tomb. And he's right. Indeed, Monsieur Skeptique. You know, it's okay for you to ask this question. Monsieur Skeptique, how did the tomb come to be empty? That's the right question. The skeptic replies, well, there could be any number of explanations. Maybe in her grief and in her disorientation, Mary goes to the wrong tomb and the disciples go to the wrong tomb. Does that sound plausible to you? It doesn't to me. Well, he was never in that grave to begin with. His body was stolen because packed on the body was a king's ransom and spices. That's sufficient motivation for even a detachment of Roman troops to steal the body. But you'll note that the skeptic never goes to the possibility that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. Someone once said that the disciples all gathered together around the campfire and, and decided to make up the story. But does that ring true? Did the soldiers steal the body? Well, we know that the soldiers were bribed by the Jewish leaders to relate that the body was stolen. Oh, that would be convenient. Or would the Jewish leaders steal the body? I don't think so, because once the Christians claim that the body has been risen from the dead, all they would have to do is produce the body. Did the disciples steal the body? How would these cowards who have run for their life address a Roman contingent of soldiers, overpower them, remove the stone, and steal the body. One Bible teacher writes, quote, His disciples did not believe that he was to be raised from the dead. It was his enemies that remembered his words in Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. We're going to put a guard here because, remember, he made allusions to the fact that he was going to come back to life. But what we believe is that the disciples are going to steal the body. They certainly wouldn't have taken the body. The last thing that they wanted was anyone believing that Jesus is risen from the, the dead. If his friends could not steal the body and his enemies would not steal the body, who took it? Nowadays, people will say, dude, what happened was there were, you know, an alien civilization was circling our planet and like somehow they locked onto the body and beamed it up. See, you're laughing because you're going, 
That makes more sense to you than a resurrection. The skeptic continues in their skepticism. But the fact of the empty tomb is testified by both the friends of Jesus and the enemies of Jesus. Everyone, without exception, agrees on one thing. The grave was empty. The Roman soldiers, the Jewish women, the followers of Jesus, the angels, everyone testifies to the empty tomb. And if Jesus had remained buried in the tomb, the story of his life would have largely remained with him. And the book that you're reading and the message that you're hearing would never be spoken. The skeptic would have us believe that the resurrection is an afterthought made by grieving disciples desperate to keep the memory of Jesus alive. The mythical end to a heroic life. Or the mass product of hallucination. I grew up in the 60s. I know about hallucination. And you know what? In all of my experiences with hallucination, 500 people never had the same hallucination at the same time. We reply, the resurrection story didn't grow out of wishful thinking or grief gone wild. But rather the historical fact of a resurrection. And in verse 2 it says, Then she, being Mary, ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid Him. Mary runs to Peter. You should take note of that because it's probably important. In spite of Peter's problems, in spite of Peter's doubt, and in spite of Peter's denial, they still go to him. He's still recognized as a leader among the disciples. And so he goes and guess who happens to be with Peter? Our friend John. John identifies himself as the other disciple whom Jesus loved. It's his humble way of saying John. But I don't think he's saying it the same way that your kids say it when, when one says to the other, Mom loves me more than, he, than she loves you. I don't think that that's the point that John is making. But rather he is connecting friendship and affection. Mary's statement, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him reveals at least two things. Number one, a deep affection for Jesus. And number two, it's certainly not belief in the resurrection. You'll remember just a few verses later, we discover her still sobbing and still crying. And she is so overcome and overwhelmed by tears and grief that she imagines the figure who is before her as a gardener. Grief and passion have not caused her to fabricate a story. Mary hasn't invented the the resurrection story as a compensation for her grief. And look what it says in verse 3. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. And the two go out to investigate the claims. What is interesting to me is that only these two seem to go. We don't have a record of 
of the rest of the disciples and most certainly Thomas. But here you have a situation where they're able to investigate the claims. Now, imagine, imagine, I know that some of you have, that you had the ability to go back in time. Imagine there was such a thing as a time machine and you could set the clock and you could set the dial to the resurrection morning. Wouldn't you want to be there? Some of you, even years later, would love to be able to go to Israel. There's a tomb there called Gordon's Tomb, and it fits the description. It's by the crossway. It's hewn out of limestone, and never a body laid there. Christianity invites all people to examine its claims in light of this most extraordinary claim. Christianity is the only religion that claims that its founder, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. As a matter of fact, Paul claims in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus is fundamental to the claims of the gospel. He writes in verse 14, And if Jesus Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. I'm wasting my time. And so are you. If Jesus is simply a good man, better than all men, and the supreme and shining example of humanity, guess what? Whatever the gospel is, it, it isn't. He came back to life. But the New Testament makes it abundantly clear he did come back to life. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you go to verse 17, Paul writes, If Christ is not raised, you are still in your sins. And then almost as an afterthought, he says in verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ or perish. Perhaps your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your child. People that you love and people that you've known who have died, they are really dead and in a place where they have no hope. As a matter of fact, remove the resurrection from Paul's message and Paul's message is gone. Remove the resurrection from John's gospel and the gospel is gone. But John writes in verse four, look what it says. So they ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and he came to the tomb first bragging rights for all eternity. Yeah, Peter may have been starting to go a little bit gray on top. A little snow on the roof, but still some fire in his heart. And wherever this tomb is, it's close enough for both of them to get there in a single race. Peter is older and slower. But they clearly have access to this tomb. And in verse 5, it says that he, speaking of John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Underline that word saw, because it's going to be important in our message and in this study. John pauses. He stoops down. He doesn't cross the threshold of the tomb, but he glances in and he sees the burial cloths lying there as if. A cocoon has collapsed. The Greek word for looking in is blepo. 
And you may not be familiar with that word, but in the Greek language, it suggests a casual glance, a cursory glance. It's that first initial glance. It's almost as, as if you see lightning on the side of your, your eye. And just for a moment you see it and, and then it's gone. The linen clothes are still in their folds. In other words, they don't appear to have been taken off or removed. They're simply there. It was as if the body of Jesus had somehow exited without benefit of unwrapping. It's as if the body of Jesus simply vanished or evaporated. And in verse 6, look what it says. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw, underline it, the linen clothes lining there. Earlier, John Bleppo, he sees it's a casual glance, but here John uses an, an entirely different Greek word for he saw. The word is thoreo. And there is a very familiar word in our language that comes from this word. It's the word theater. As a matter of fact, we use that word when we use it to describe someone who is taking a good, long lingering, careful look. Sometimes when my wife and I will go to a movie and I'll be completely bored with the movie. But I'm so completely not bored with her. And so I'll watch her watching the movie. Have you ever done that? You go somewhere and you watch the person watching. And so when I'm watching my, my wife's face, it's so expressive. If something very, very sad is taking place, she gets very, very sad. And if, if something agitating is taking place, she gets really agitated. And if something horrifying is taking place, she'll scream! And everybody, especially her children, sink into the chair. Because it's so embarrassing. And I suspect that this is exactly what's happening. John is watching Peter watch the tomb. And you can see the wheels start to turn. What does this mean? What does this mean if the body is removed by robbers? How did they remove the body without unwrapping the body? And by the way, if you're going to steal a body for the purpose of stealing the spices because they're worth a king's ransom, why would you leave them behind? And we're left with the impression that the two disciples don't discuss the implications right away or their thoughts with each other. Peter crosses the threshold and he walks into the tomb. And look at verse 7. It says, And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Remember, the word handkerchief is an, another Greek word. It's soderion. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 19, verse 20. And sometimes this word was used to describe a scarf or a neck cloth, something that you would tie around your neck. It was also sometimes used to describe um, the cloth that a person would tie around their head to keep 
the sun off of their neck. Sometimes it was used like a handkerchief when you would perspire. And sometimes it would be used like a burial cloth, like it appears in the NIV version. But we're told right here in the text that the handkerchief had been wrapped around the corpse's head. In other words, you have to understand a little bit about ancient burial practices. In the ancient world, different cultures buried their dead differently. The Egyptians would embalm their dead. And some of you are familiar with an Egyptian mummy. And and you've watched movies or you've been to the museum. And you see how the cloth is wrapped around their head and covers their eyes and their nose and their mouth and their neck and their shoulders. And the whole mummy is wrapped from top to bottom. The Greeks and the Romans typically would not embalm their dead, but rather they would cremate their dead. But the ancient Jews in the first century would do neither of those things. The ancient Jews would wrap in linen and they would wrap the corpse and they would tie the arms and the shoulders would be free and the neck would be free and the face would be exposed and Gentlemen in the Middle East would wear a wrap around their head, very much like a turban. And apparently this is that cloth. It's wrapped around the head. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, once the body had decomposed, they would gather the bones and place them in a limestone box about the same size as, as that speaker here and that speaker there. It was called an ossuary or a bone box. And once the body had decomposed, they would gather up the bones and then all of the family bones would be placed in a single box. Can you imagine? John's head is spinning and reeling. His mind is wandering and pondering and thinking. By the way, if you are thieves and you come to rob the body, does this make sense that you would carefully fold the turban? By the way, when thieves break into homes, do they vacuum the carpet, do the laundry, and fold the towels before they ransack the home? Forget these for a moment and just pretend like they're teenagers. Teenagers, when they are out to do not harm, but they're just doing regular teenage things and they descend into the kitchen. Do they mop and scrub the floor and the counters and do the dishes and put it carefully back in the drain rack? No. Do you think thieves are any more careful? The body's gone. And look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, this is John, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw, underline that word saw. He saw and believed. Once again, John uses a different verb in the Greek language. Remember, we've looked at blepo, which is a cursory or a, a casual look, Foreo, which is a long, intense, careful look. But now, John uses another verb, oreo. In the original language, it means to look. But to look in such a way that you understand. Have you ever had one of those aha moments where you're looking and you go, I get it. 
We have another phrase that we use in our language. Eureka! I see. It's sort of like, again, when you're a kid and you look at algebraic expression on the chalkboard. I know, I'm so hopelessly old and out of it. You look at algebraic functions on computer screens. Do they do algebraic functions on computer screens? You look at the algebraic functions and you realize something. That you understand the symbolism. This is exactly what's happening. The body is gone. Well, yeah. But look what it says. He went in and he saw and believed. Believed what? Believed that the body was gone? Believed that the body is disturbed? Believed that the body is reinterred? Believed that the body is stolen? No! John believes that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. That he is alive. John believes what he sees. Mary is the first at the tomb. Peter is the first in the tomb. But John is the first to believe the empty tomb. William Barclay is right when he says, quote, That must always be John's great glory. He was the first man to understand and to believe love gave him eyes to read the signs and a mind to understand. He sees the linen. He remembers the prophecy that Jesus will go to Jerusalem. He will be arrested by the religious leaders. He will be beaten and executed and killed and come back to life. John loves him. And believes him. And by the way, this is important. I've never met a single person who's come to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because they heard some profound philosophical argument. They heard the ontological argument for the existence of God. And then they embraced Jesus as Savior. They heard the teleological argument for the existence of God. And they embraced the Savior. I have never met a single person who hears a well-reasoned argument laid out before them. And then they go, this is it. I'm going to repent of my sins. And I'm going to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every person I've ever met who's ever accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, their heart breaks and they begin to understand this message of hope. It isn't just simply the threat of hell, but the possibility that someone could love them and forgive them. It is true that the ontological and the teleological arguments can provide a rational basis for belief in God and a rational basis for belief in Jesus. It's reasonable, but it's not conclusive. Love is able to sense and feel and know the truth. Again, Barclay reminds us that, quote, Love can grasp the truth when intellect is left groping and uncertain. Love can realize the meaning of a thing when research is blind. Once a young artist brought a picture of Jesus to Gustav Dore for his verdict, and Dore was slow to give it, but at last he did so in a single sentence, quote, You don't love him. 
or else you would paint him better. How interesting. We can neither understand Jesus nor help others understand him unless we love him. Unless we take him into our hearts. And that's the pastor's dilemma. How can I make you understand that he's alive? You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it says, And we know, and we have known and believed the love of God that God has for us, that God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. In John chapter 20, in verses 9 and 10, John writes, For as yet they did not know the Scripture, that He must rise again from the dead. Do you understand what he's saying? The previous predictions of Jesus had fallen on deaf ears and eluded the disciples. Clearly, they didn't understand the Old Testament in Psalm 16:9, where the psalmist writes, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the passage that a few weeks later, Peter will use as the text of his sermon as he preaches to the religious leaders and the Jews who have gathered together after the ascension of Jesus into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes. In Psalm chapter 49, verse 15, it says, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. John has taken the journey from unbelief to belief. But Mary has not taken the journey from grief to joy. And Peter has not taken the journey from doubt to assurance. And I have no way of looking inside of your heart. I have no way of knowing what's inside of you or where you're at in your journey. There was a biography written about a very famous preacher named R.W. Dale. He was a congregational minister in England a long time ago. I love biographies. And every biography that I've ever read, when the person dies, guess what? They're buried. I've never read a biography about a single person who comes back to life. Except for this guy. 
Right when you think the story is over, the story continues. Jesus is still alive. And this biography written about R.W. Dell, the biographer says, and I quote, the thought of the risen Lord broke in upon him as it had never done before. R.W. Dell was getting ready to write his Easter sermon. And he writes, quote, Christ is alive, I said to myself. Alive, and then I pause. Alive, and then I paused again. Alive, can it really be true? Living as really as I myself am. I got up and walked about repeating, Christ is living. Christ is living. It was to me a new discovery. I thought that all along I had believed it, but not until that moment did I feel sure about it. I then said, my people shall know it. I shall preach it again and again until they believe it as I do now, which began the custom of singing in Cars Lane. That's the name of the church. Every Sunday morning, an Easter hymn. It was Resurrection Sunday every Sunday there. Do you remember the first time you believed that Jesus was alive? Not just you went to a catechism class or you went to a religious training class or you voiced the words, you, you had heard it, you watched it on TV, you read it in books, you, you could recite the mantra, but you, you finally, you really believed that Jesus was alive. I remember. I was 16 years old. And there was a young evangelist who was preaching from John's Gospel. It was the 11th chapter. You all know the story how Lazarus has died and the disciples have delayed their coming and he has been in the grave for four days. And his body is starting to decompose. And as he unfolded the story, I remember thinking, what's going to happen? And you'll remember what Jesus said. Roll back the stone. And they replied to Jesus, but Lord, he stinketh. That's old King James for body's ripe right about now, Lord. There are certain things that you don't want to smell. There are certain smells that are unforgettable. There are many people here who know what that smell is like. When I work with law enforcement officers and first responders, it isn't unusual to come across a dead body and the stench is unmistakable. And I remember that same stench coming from the surface of my own soul, the wickedness and perversion and evil. My rotting heart was decomposing. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. And I remember asking the question, If Jesus, if this Jesus can bring a dead body back to life, 
I wonder if he could take the surface of my soul, the wickedness that's inside of me, the deadness that's inside of me, and bring it back to life. And I heard the words whispered, I'm the resurrection and the life. I heard it over and over again. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. Even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And then I entertained a notion. Not that Jesus would simply save me from hell, but the possibility. Not even the certainty. Just the possibility that he could love somebody like me and change somebody like me. And I'll never forget the thought entered my mind. He's alive. He's alive. And if he's alive, he can forgive me. And if he's alive, he can change me. If he's alive, he can bless me. If he's alive, he can heal me. If he's alive, he can do everything that he said. And that's exactly what happens to John. He makes the transition from death to life. He understands that Jesus is alive. And we have every reason to believe that John is a teenager when he visits that tomb. Does he understand the atonement is complete? Does he understand all of the implications? Perhaps not. But he understands something, that the empty grave becomes a place of hope. And by the way, graves are usually a place of grief and sorrow and bitter disappointment. Graves aren't the place where you go to say hello, but where you go to say goodbye. But the empty tomb of Jesus becomes the place where one teenage boy and hope ripens into salvation but not for everyone Peter's doubts still linger Mary's pain and confusion aren't gone how many people do you know who buried their hopes and their dreams because their hopes and dreams were contained in the person who died graves exist not only in deep oceans and not only in manicured cemeteries, not only in the cold earth, not only in hot ovens, not only in the side of limestone cliffs, human hearts can sometimes become sepulchers, the place where people bury their hopes and bury their dreams, bury their past bury their sins every Sunday without fail every Sunday someone comes to our church and their heart is empty and their heart is broken or their heart is scarred by some unrealized hope or unfulfilled expectation and they wonder if Jesus will forgive them. If Jesus will change them. If Jesus will transform them. 
Did you know that your sorrow can become joy and your disappointment can become hope and your guilt can become a cleansed heart and your fear can become love? The resurrection teaches us that the mission of Jesus was divine and his willingness to enter into our suffering on our behalf to bring healing. The resurrection assures us of God's unchanging character and eternal life. And the resurrection of Jesus is a down payment and assurance of our own resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus is Christ's pledge that we can trust God's goodness and his promise. But look what it says in verse 10. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. How does that happen? How do you come to an empty tomb and then go back home like nothing has happened? But not everyone leaves. Mary remains. She's not prepared to go just yet. And she expresses her grief and tears. And the sorrow and the separation are open sores. You know, women are remarkable. They seldom forsake those that they love, even when the last few hours have been filled with pain and darkness, even with the promise that the peaking sun may offer a new day. But Peter and John are gone. And whatever excitement the future holds for Peter and John, it isn't in this empty tomb. But Mary remains. And in a moment, she's going to have an unforgettable experience. She's going to have a rendezvous with an angel and with the risen Lord. Mary's journey isn't quite over. She's still grief-stricken. She's still heart-sick. She's still ravaged and devastated. But in the space of a few moments, she is going to experience joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. The disciples also have a journey ahead. For some, it means taking the journey from fear to courage. And for one disciple named Thomas, it's taking a journey from doubt. To assurance. Perhaps you're on a journey as well. Perhaps something inside of you remains unconvinced or uncommitted. The resurrection, by the way, is listed in all four Gospels. And the resurrection isn't immediately believed by all. And the resurrection will become the theme of the message of hope. The resurrection makes it possible and guarantees that we can take the journey, if you want to, from guilt to innocence, from separation to reunion. You can take the journey from weakness and impotence to power and strength. And the resurrection means that death will never, ever, ever be the final word. Not for any of you. You'll come back to life. It marks... The beginning of the lordship of Jesus over his church. The resurrection warns the sinner of the coming judgment. And the resurrection does something else. It forever seals the doom of Satan. 
He can't win. And he won't win. And the largest tool that he possesses, death, its fangs have been removed. Its terror dissipated. Because Jesus is alive. He can change everything. The unchanging God and the unchanging Savior able to change everyone. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who will make the journey home. Lord, but I also pray for the person who is not content to remain in grief and not content to remain in doubt and not content to remain in pain. Lord, I pray for that person whose heart is empty and needs to be filled. And I pray for that person whose heart is broken and needs to be healed. And Lord, I pray for that person who is smothered with grief and wants a tiny taste of joy. Lord, I pray that you would do that work that only you can do. Lord, I pray that the sinner would pray that simple prayer. I believe that you're alive. I believe that you can forgive my sin. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin and rose from the dead. And because he's alive, really alive, I can be different. And the whole world can be different. And my past can be forgiven. And my future can be secured. Lord, that's the kind of life that I want, the kind of love that I want, and the kind of hope that I want. In Jesus' name, amen.